Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. I am so thankful to see such a good turnout on a holiday weekend. Um, you know, God's word tells us where two or more are gathered, his presence will be with us. Um, so it's always a privilege to come up here and be able to preach. In case we haven't had the privilege of being introduced, my name is Joseph Laslett, a member of the leadership team here at FOS. Uh, and I'm able to step in today for Pastor Tyler and Pastor Justin. Uh, every year they go up as a family to their cabin to celebrate 4th of July and just enjoy a weekend of rest, recovery, and fellowship. Um, so I have the privilege of stepping in and bringing the Lord's word to you today. Uh, but as I thought and prepared this text today, I also just dwelled on the fact that it's a big responsibility to bring God's word to his church and preach it. We're told that teachers are held to a higher standard. Uh, and as I prayed and dwelt on that, obviously a lot of work goes in to prepare this and make sure it's delivered to you the way God would intend it. Uh, but I also thought about 1 Peter, where it tells all Christians to prepare their mind for action. And so my heart and prayer really for all of you this week as I went through this message was that you would come in here ready to receive what the Lord has prepared for you. Uh, I, I truly believe there's something for everybody from today's teaching, whether you've been a believer for many years or maybe you're living without God in your life. Uh, he's coming after you. He loves you. Um, and so I, I really want that to, to sit in and dwell in. Uh, but as my dad said, we're wrapping up our series, A Tale of Two Kings. And so we've been going through this for six months. Uh, and this series has really been a study through the book of 1 Samuel, where we've looked at the, two, the first two anointed kings of Israel. We have King Saul, who is, I call it, the people's king. He's the king that the people ask God for. Uh, and he ruled and actually had some really great victories that God gave him early on. But eventually, his pride got in the way. He rejected God. And God raised up David, who would eventually take Saul's place. And really, the last couple of months, we've been living in that tension, where Saul is still king of Israel. He's pursuing David, trying to kill David. But yet, God is preparing the way to move Saul aside and raise David up. And we saw last week, David had hit his rock bottom. He was living a compromised state, sinning. He spent 16 months as a murdering, lying bandit, leading his men into all sort of sin and debauchery. But he repented and found his strength in God, and now he was ready to be king. And then today, we wrap up Saul's story. Really, the end of his life, we're, we're closing the book on it. Uh, and it's easy to look at this and be like, yeah, Saul, He's done. This guy sucks. <laughs> He's been coming after David, and I'm sick and tired of hearing about it for three, four months in a row. I mean, this guy is rejecting God. He's a terrible sinner. He got exactly what he deserved. And there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you know, sin does deserve judgment, and he got uh, kind of what his sin reaped. But I want us to look at the other side of it and really understand that Saul's life is a tragedy. And that's what I've called this sermon today, the tragedy of King Saul. Because while he was the people's king, God did bless him, anoint him, and wanted to use him, and ultimately wanted a relationship with him. And yet Saul couldn't get out of his own way. Everything was about him. And so ultimately, his life turns into a tragedy. And my hope is I want to go through the full scale and scope of his tragedy, look at how he rejected God, look at the death and destruction that his sin and pride produced, and ultimately look at the, the ultimate form of his tragedy, right? He, he failed to repent and turn back to God. That's ultimately what makes it a tragedy and not a fairy tale. And my heart behind this text is really twofold. Um, one, if you're here today and maybe you're living out that same tragedy, you've rejected God, sin is running rapid in your life. It's not only causing distress, destruction for you, but it's affecting those around you. 
I don't want you to live out that third leg of that tragedy. It's never too late to repent and turn back to Christ and have that abundant life that he promises you. So I want to go through that so your heart is moved and you see that God doesn't want you to have to bear the weight of that judgment. He wants you to repent and return to him. But the second heart is for, for many of us here who are committed to following Christ, I want to give us a heart for people who are living that tragedy. Because uh, you can see a story like King Saul and you can just really hate the guy. Uh, and it can be simple in your life. You, maybe your coworkers, your bosses are disrespecting you. You've got friends that have betrayed you. You've got family that, that doesn't support you like they should. And you can see these people living this life of sin. And it's okay to hate the sin. But I don't want us to be so hateful toward them that we don't live out our great commission. I want us to have that same compassion and mercy that Jesus had for us to go after people. And so I think looking at the full depth of that tragedy is going to help give us that heart. And so that's really the goal for today. And so uh, my first point and where I'll start is, you know, Saul's life's a tragedy because he rejected God. Uh, and in First Chronicles chapter 10, the author actually gives us a retelling of Saul's last days. And he gives the spiritual reason for Saul's death. It says it here in First Chronicles 10, picking it up in verse 13, Saul died for his unfaithfulness to the Lord because he did not keep the Lord's word. He even consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned his kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Ultimately, what we see is it isn't the Philistines who took out Saul. God used the Philistines, but because of his pride, Saul opposed God and God, after years of mercy and patience, brought out his judgment upon Saul. And what you see is unfaithfulness, disobedience, consulting a medium, these are all forms of rejection. When you look at these individually, you really see that played out. I mean, what does it mean to be unfaithful? And I think the best illustration for this is a married couple, right? And it's actually one that Jesus uses very often in his gospel accounts. If you're married to your spouse, you are to be faithful to them. That means that is the one person for you. You're not finding sex and pleasure outside of marriage. And if you do that, it is unfaithful to the spouse. Ultimately, you aren't committed to them. You're committed to yourself and your pleasure. And in the same way, why Saul looked like he had all the outward appearances of a good relationship with Christ, especially early on when he was getting victories over the Philistines. Ultimately, he wasn't faithful and committed to Christ. His loyalty didn't primarily lie there. It was in, his, in himself. His pride was always preeminent and above God. And then that plays out even further, disobedience. We see this throughout the book. I mean, really where God pulls his blessing off of Saul when he tells Saul to wait, wait for Samuel to come, prepare the burnt offering, and then at that time you can go and fight the Philistines. But things were looking really dicey. He didn't trust God's timing and he was disobedient. And yet you see Samuel confronts him and God doesn't immediately pull his blessing away from Saul. He confronts him, gives him the opportunity to confess and repent. He doesn't do it, makes excuses, and at that point his blessing is removed. And this is important because we're, we listen to what we're loyal to, Right? If you're not loyal to something, why do you care what that person has to say? You're not going to listen to it. And so when you see Saul's life in a continual pattern of disobedience, with his actions, he is continually choosing to reject God. And how many, of, how many people out there do that, even within the church? They claim that God is Lord of their life, and yet there is no pattern of obedience. I mean, Luke 6 to me is just... It really hits me in the soul where it says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't obey what my word says? I mean, I have conversations with people even within our own church body 
who literally argued with me, you know, meeting on a Sunday morning is not important. You know, God's word would say, why would you forsake the gathering of the saints? Like people try to justify why they shouldn't have to give. And the church doesn't need your money. I don't need your money. We, we don't want you to give for our sake, but God's telling you there's tremendous blessings there, and yet people come up with every excuse underneath the, the sun to why it's not only not needed, but I give to God in other ways. Or you think of discipleship, how much time and energy that takes, but yet we've got people who are not committed to even reading their Bible once a week. I mean, how can you obey God's word if you don't listen to it? But we see that that's what modeled Saul's life, continual rejection of God by, through his disobedience. And then ultimately, when you think of seeking a medium, I've actually heard the argument that, yeah, he used a medium, but ultimately Samuel came and he was asking God through Samuel, hey, hear me out, please, is there, you know, can we change this situation? But his heart wasn't really inquiring of the Lord. You see that in his response. Samuel says, God is not giving you your kingdom back. You're going to die tomorrow. Um, you know, get your, your will, your will and testament done, prepare, because you've got 24 hours left. And you don't see him grieving over his broken relationship. He falls face down to the ground. And what God's word says is he was tired because he hadn't eaten or drank in a full day or night. I mean, there's no indication that his heart was grieved over the rejection of God. Uh, and it's important because I don't know where you're at today, but God so desperately wants a relationship with you, a life-giving, abundant relationship with you. We know it because Jesus came and died for you. He literally became the bridge so that we could be reconciled with him. And yet, like saw how, how often do people out there, even within the church, reject God? And I think it's helpful to, to look at kind of the forms of rejection because rejection can play out in a lot of different ways. There's outright rejection, right? Like the Philistines defying God outright, wanting nothing to do with him. You're not going to listen to him, not going to seek his counsel because you hate him. And there are people out there like that. I mean, you look at our culture, it is fully opposed to God. We're tracking in that direction. When you look at things like how we view sexuality, how we view God's word in totality, I mean, it's outright rejection. Um, and we need to be going after those people because they're living that tragedy. But there's also rejection that looks like just ignoring God. Uh, and I've heard the argument that ignoring God isn't rejecting God. And I was thinking through, how can I illustrate really that it is? Uh, and here's what I came up with. So sorry, Frank, I'm going to use you. If Frank is pursuing a girl, he's intimately going after her, trying to initiate conversation, texting her, you know, continually going after her, and she doesn't talk to him, doesn't even look at him, he's not going to view that as a neutral interaction. He's going to view that as rejection. That's going to hurt. And then the same, <laughs> he might keep trying. And if she continues to ignore him, it's continual rejection. Yeah. And in the same way, that's God coming after us. We see that in his word. And so if you choose to ignore him and be indifferent towards him, he views that as rejection as he should as any of us would if we were pursuing somebody and they outright ignored us. And then I think probably the scariest form of rejection, uh, I'll use the term lukewarm Christian. Those who think they're saved, but don't have a real relationship with Christ. And what we see in the beginning of 1 Samuel, that was Saul for a long time. I think maybe at a point he thought he had a real relationship with Jesus and with Christ, and with God, especially when you're looking at the victories and blessings he was giving him. But ultimately, his heart was not committed to him. He had no desire to obey him. 
Uh, and I think it's, it's really scary when you talk with people who, you know, they're going to church on a Sunday morning. They might even give and serve every once in a while. Um, they're doing the, the practices outwardly that look like a Christian. But in their heart, they're loyal to things of this world. Everything they do is based on their earthly ambition. There is no real track record of obedience. I mean, disobedience marks their life. And ultimately, they, they're self-reliant or seek the mediums and counsels of the world over what God's word would say. They're not seeking him in prayer. Uh, and I'm not here to cast judgment on whether you're saved or not. I would just say, you know, James is very clear, faith without works is dead. So when you look at the totality of your life, it's the question of, was the tree dead when I planted it? Or did it die after I planted it? Can you lose your salvation or did you never have it to begin with? There's theological arguments and, and strong cases that have been made throughout church history. All I'll say is if you look at the totality of your life and there is no commitment, loyalty, or fruit of obedience and commitment to the Lord, you just have to ask yourself, have I rejected him? And if you have, I'm thankful that maybe that's coming to light today because it's not too late to turn from rejection to repentance. That would be my heart for you. Um, and, and so that's the third way we can reject God. But there is also a way you can reject God where you are saved, but you're rejecting him daily with your actions. I mean, this was David for 16 months, right? He was still the man after God's own heart. But ultimately, he was living in a form of rejection where his works were not lasting for eternity. I'm pretty sure nothing he did while he was a man, killing people, stealing from people, leading his people into sin, got him rewards that he's going to be able to enjoy in heaven. And so there is a way where you can be, have a true relationship with Christ, be saved, but not receive a well-done and faithful servant. And once again, that comes back to, what are you living for? You know, Philippians would tell us, those who are enemies of the cross are those who are seeking after things of the earth. Are you more concerned with heaven, things of eternity, or are you more concerned with earth and your ambitions here? Look at your life. Are, are you actually seeking to be obedient to what God's word says, especially if you disagree with it? Then ultimately, what, it, what does it look like to seek counsel? Are you in God's word? Are you seeking him in prayer? Um, and ultimately, if you are in the family of Christ, but living in a way that has periods of rejection, repentance isn't a one-time thing. You continually repent and turn back, uh, and God's grace is always there to fill you up. So that's the first element of how Saul's life is a tragedy. Uh, but the second way is really the death and destruction that Saul's sin caused. And I love how verse 6 just basically summarizes chapter 31. It says, so on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men. And we see that sin always has consequences. And almost always, the consequences aren't just focused on the person who's sinning. It affects all those around them, all those that are tied to that person. And so I just want to spend really a few minutes going through each of the three layers, how it affected the people Saul was leading, how it was affecting his family, and ultimately how it affected him. And when we look at Israel, by the very definition, leadership means to lead the people who are following you on the same path you're going. And so Saul chose pride. He chose to reject God and put himself in direct opposition to God. So we're told that God opposes the proud. And so by definition, all the people who are standing with Saul are standing against God. That doesn't mean they weren't saved. We know Jonathan was a man after his own heart. Um, but it brought destruction and pain to the people who were following Saul because he was leading them in a dangerous direction. And I just look at it and I, you know, the standard hasn't changed. If anything, it's been risen. When you look at God's word 
and the standard that God has for overseers, deacons, people who are leading within his church. I would encourage you this week to go read 1 Timothy chapter 3. I mean, Paul lays out the qualifications for overseers and deacons, and it's a high standard. The heart calling is extremely high. And God lays that out there because as leaders within the church, if we lead you astray, it can have disastrous ramifications for your faith and for your life. Absolutely disastrous. Um, and I will say the leaders here at FOS take that very, very seriously. Um, even on our last elder meeting, I mean, we had some real conversations about accountability. Um, and nobody here is missing the standards in First Timothy, but it's this calling of we can always be better. We want to be better for you. We're a work in progress too. And what we see with David in 1 Samuel is for a while he walked really good with the Lord. But if you're not continually striving toward holiness, you can drift down. And if you're leading people, that can have disastrous effects. I mean, I'm sure if you've been in the church long enough, you've seen a, a pastor with some sort of moral failure. Often does that just cause a schism in the church, disunity within the church. Sometimes that church post literally shuts down. And how sad is that? When a lot of times these are people who love the Lord, but they weren't committed to holiness, to the standards that God had set. And I would say it extends even beyond those in church leadership. If you are a Christian, those standards in 1 Timothy 3 should be what you are aspiring to. Because the reality is every single person in this room has influence. And I, we really need to take it seriously. It might only be with one person. It might be one of your friends. It could be a family member. It could be a coworker. Could be somebody in your community group. And what you do matters and will have an impact on them. You have influence and leadership with somebody. You don't want to waste it. You don't want to make the teachings of Christ look unappealing because of the way you're living. So we need to take that seriously. And then the second way we see Saul's sin produce death and destruction is what came upon his own family. And it happened before this chapter, right? I mean, Jonathan and David were best friends. They had a covenant with each other. Yet because of Saul's sin, he put a wedge between that. They were still friends, but they weren't able to fellowship on a daily basis. Ultimately, what we see here is while Jonathan was trying to save David, he had respect and loyalty to his dad. And actually, they ended up on opposite sides. Saul's daughter was married to David. And yet, what do we see? Because of that, because of Saul pursuing David, that marriage gets ripped apart. And we know from God's word that is never God's intention. Just, he loves marriage. And then what we see today is three of Saul's sons die in battle fighting with him. And it, it's important because it matters what foundation you set your family on. And so regardless of your position in the family, this point's important, but I really want to hone in for those who are going to be leading their household, specifically parents or young adults here who one day will be married uh, it is critically important that you lay a foundation of holiness for your family if you desire what's best for them. And this is clearly laid out in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, where Jesus says the following, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came and the river crashed against that house, he could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it and immediately it collapsed. And the destruction of that house 
was great. It's important, you know, you can set somebody on a holy foundation and they can choose to jump in the water, can choose to reject God. Somebody can be in a household that's built on sand and God can grab them out of the water and save them. But as far as pain and destruction that they may have to experience in their life, I mean, I don't think I have to even convince you from scripture that that's true. You talk to anybody who's been in a house with an alcoholic parent or an abusive parent or somebody who's got a gambling problem, clearly that doesn't just affect that individual. It affects everybody under that house. And in the same way, when we think of, especially those within the family of Christ, really one thing that I see and it breaks my heart, somebody who's professed Christian, but they're not pursuing holiness, they're living for worldly things. When you think of your children, they follow actions. They see what you prioritize. I mean, if you say you love Jesus, but everything you do shows that you love money and building your business or building your kingdom or building, you know, maybe you love pleasure and vacations. I don't know what it is. They're, that's what they're going to see. And, and honestly, when I talk to a lot of young adults, especially back in my days where I was in a young adult's ministry, fellowshipping with people, you see that. That affects their life. And they think Jesus is something you add into your life versus something you place at the top and Lord of your life. And so we need to take that foundation seriously. And on the flip side, I have personally experienced the, the benefits of being placed on a good foundation. The family legacy that I have. Now, my profession of faith, once again, that was an individual decision. But one of the main reasons I'm up here, preaching the word of God, having an abundant life with Jesus, is because of my family. You know, I think of my parents committing to raising me up in the way I should go. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've asked my dad for advice and he's held me accountable to God's word when I'm doing something stupid. And also when I needed advice, he doesn't just give me his opinion, points me to God's word and says, what would God have you do? Or I think of when I was a college student and I was living in depravity and just being a horrible sinner. My dad didn't pound me with wrath and justice held me accountable, but then he showed me patience and forgiveness, modeled that patience and forgiveness that Jesus has with the hope that I would repent and turn back to the ways of the Lord. Or I think of my mom. You know, a couple years ago, we were at my grandpa's funeral. My grandma's like, I just don't understand how all your sons are just doing so well. What do you do? My mom's answer was I prayed with them. She didn't just pray for us. She prayed with us. You know, as families, as head of households, do we pray with our kids? Do we model that as a daily practice? Not just pray for them, but pray with them. I think of my brothers who model sacrifice and radical generosity that sometimes just appears foolish. I mean, they, they're always looking out for the well-being of others. I mean, sometimes I, we, we give them a hard time about how they use their money. But if they see a need, they're going to meet it. They, they are storing up treasures in heaven. And even beyond my immediate family, I look at my grandpa who cast his earthly ambitions to the side, sold his own farm to go be a pastor, plant churches in Kenya. And at the beginning of this year, we had his funeral and all you heard was, this was a man who committed his life to discipleship, to pouring into others, to calling them to holiness. That legacy had a real impact on me. That can have a real impact on your families. So we need to be committed to holiness. Don't let sin run unchecked in your household. Even the perceived small sins, whether it's, well, I, I like to have three or four drinks at night, but I know it's causing issues for my family. Kill it. Pursue holiness for the sake of your family. You know, maybe you have love of money. 
And everything you do is motivated by getting more money. Kill that. Seek to disciple and grow your children in the way of the Lord. Whatever that sin is, do not let it be like a lion where it will grow to full birth and destroy your entire family. Kill it and pursue holiness. We see that Saul didn't do that, and his pride brought down his entire household and caused them all to die. And then the third and final way we see death and destruction come as a result of Saul's sin is came upon himself. Eventually, he died. Uh, And we see this dating all the way back to Genesis 3. Sin produces death. Because of our sin, we all now have to experience death, earthly death, which was never God's intention for us. Never intended us for us to experience that. And we see it directly leads to Saul's death here. But beyond that, it led to death of the joy and peace in his life. God doesn't just promise us eternal life, but he promises us an abundant life now. But when we sin, it directly counteracts and kills that. And you see this most practically played out after God's spirit leaves Saul and the evil spirit comes upon him. We're told he was so restless he couldn't even sleep. Talk about losing joy and peace. I lose sleep for a day or two. I'm a miserable person. My poor wife. Um, and that was Saul's, Saul's place. He, he had no joy and peace. And in the same way, how many of us, when we reject God and let sin run unchecked, we're losing joy, we're losing peace, we're losing that abundant life that he wants for us and he's promised for us. And then ultimately, there was a spiritual death for Saul, which leads to my third and final point. Saul's story is a tragedy because he never repented and turned back to God. It's the ultimate tragedy. Um, Because ultimately, at one point, we were all living out the story of rejection Sin was running rapid in all of our lives at one point. Whether it was a few years, most of your lifetime, maybe you're still there. But Saul's life becomes the ultimate tragedy because now he's eternally separated from God. We see no indication in Scripture that Saul repented and turned back to Christ. And yet what we see is God had such an abundant mercy on Saul. Why didn't Saul die immediately? Why didn't Adam and Eve die immediately? Why don't you drop dead the second you, you sin? Because God has mercy on you. And I thought of, you know, what would be the best way to illustrate this? And I think it's just to go through Saul's entire story and just look at how he continually chose rejection over repentance. You look at chapters 9 and 10. God anoints Saul as king of Israel. And he's ready, Samuel's ready to announce him to the people. And he's hiding in the baggage. He's rejecting God's calling to be king of my people. God would have been within his right right there to say, you don't want it, fine, I will bring up somebody else. God was faithful to him, showed patience, raised him up. And then we see uh, in chapter 13, you know, Saul's preparing to fight the Philistines. He's told to wait seven days, we've talked about this, for Samuel to come and prepare the burnt offering. He disobeys, does it himself. Samuel confronts him. And ultimately, God gives him the opportunity to acknowledge his sin and repent. Instead, he makes excuse, tries to justify his actions. We see that God's favor is removed from Saul, but he's still allowed to be king. He doesn't, doesn't get killed. And then the Philistines start coming against Saul. When you look at today's story, the Philistines marched against Israel, and God delivered Saul into the Philistines' hands. Have you looked at 1 Samuel and wondered, why, had, why didn't that happen earlier? Israel was never in a military position where they were strategically superior. I mean, you look at chapter 14, people are fleeing into the caves. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, two dudes, run up the hill 
with God behind him, they beat the Philistines. God could have very easily delivered Saul over to their hand, but he uses the faithfulness of his son to see, see what life looks like when you have me at your side. Give him that mercy. You know, what do we see Saul do? He doesn't repent. He makes a rash oath and actually tries to get his son killed. And then in chapter 17, the Philistines are now bring their champion Goliath in their army. They're defying. Saul's not gonna stand up and fight this dude. So God brings David, the man after his own heart, the man who will eventually be king of Israel. And he defeats him. Once again, he spares Saul from losing his kingdom and his life. Yet, we don't see Saul repent. What do we see? He's inquiring of David, yo, tell me who your dad is. You gonna be the one to take my throne? Chooses rejection. And then, uh, one of the, the ways that really jumped out to me as I was studying this text is, Saul is distressed because God's spirit has been removed from him. So what does God do? Talk about showing mercy. Sends him David to play some stringed instruments, play some worship music. Like, I just imagine David saying, the mercies of the Lord, they're so deep, repent, turn back to him. Doesn't hear it, doesn't repent. The only song he hears is, Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. His pride grows, he chooses rejection over repentance. And then Saul spends a decade pursuing David, trying to murder him. And David has two opportunities to literally kill Saul. Talk about a physical representation of God's mercy in the moment. He doesn't just spare his life. David actually tries to reconcile the relationship with him, turn him not just make their relationship good, but like, Saul, turn back to God, repent. Yet we don't see Saul do that. He continues to choose rejection, continues to choose to pursue and try to kill David. And then a few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 28. I don't think we, we always recognize it, but God, what a mercy to tell Saul he had 24 hours. If there was ever a time to put eternity in your mind, imagine you go to the doctor's office and the doctor says, you got 24 hours to live. I have to imagine you're gonna consider the things past death. And yet we don't see Saul repent. In fact, what we see is he's grieving his sorrow is because he's tired, he hasn't eaten. We see no heart repentance. And then even in chapter 31, talks about when the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. That arrow could have gone through his head and killed him immediately. Yeah, what a mercy that even in that battle where God was gonna kill him, he allows him to be on the battlefield and slowly dying. He had his thief on the cross moment. He could have repented in that in his final minutes been with Christ for eternity. You don't see a heart of repentance. You see, even in death, he is focused on his pride. I don't want to be tortured and humiliated. It's not that I want to be with Christ. Continually chooses rejection over repentance. And what's sad is there's so many out there who live out that same tragedy. I mean, I, I don't know what your story looks like, but I'm sure if you sat down, created an Excel spreadsheet and went through your life, you would just see God's mercy and patience towards you over and over and over again. There's no greater evidence of that by the fact that you are here today. God is saying, just in his word, the return of Christ is gonna happen soon. It's gonna happen suddenly. It tells us our life is but a vapor. You may only have 24 hours. You may only have 24 minutes. But you're here today. Don't assume you have a lifetime to repent turn back. I think this is most clearly illustrated in Romans 2. Um, 
mean, this just really hits me. Romans 2 verse 4 where it says, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And the phrase, his riches, when you think of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, you think of the amount of net worth that's out there and you attribute that terminology to God. His grace is so deep. Humanity can't, can't deplete it. No matter how much you've sinned, how, how far you've gone, God's grace can capture you. And he's so patient. He's shown such restraint. And it's for the purpose of leading all of us into repentance, into relationship with him. Um, and it just saddens me when you read that. Do you despise the riches? How many people just spit in his face? All he wants to do is give you good things and abundant life. He wants to call you into that life-giving relationship. And he came down and paid the most humiliating price you could possibly pay when he died on that cross. And yet people spit and reject in his face. And even Christians who have accepted that reject him and spit in his face with the way they live. I don't know what sin is running rampant in your life, but kill it. Repent. Turn back to Christ. Don't let it steal your peace. Don't let it steal your joy. He has so much more for you. Maybe you're here today. Uh, at Fos, we, we never come up here and preach without giving a gospel call. And really, this, this sermon today is essentially a sermon about the gospel. It's really what it is. King Saul and King David were really living the same path. When you look at the last four chapters, David was living in rejection and compromise. Saul has clearly been living in rejection and compromise. Sin is causing destruction for the people they're leading. It's causing havoc in their families, causing havoc in their lives. The only difference between David and Saul and why David is a man after God's own heart is he loves Christ and he chooses to repent. Think of verse or chapter 30 last week. David found his strength in the Lord. He didn't earn it. He didn't bargain for it. He found it. It was freely given to him. All he had to do was acknowledge, repent, and accept at that time what God was going to give him. That same opportunity is available to you today if you don't know Jesus Christ. He loves you. Yes, you've rejected him, maybe outright. Maybe you just ignored him. Maybe... You're sitting here and say, well, I thought I had a profession, but I've really never committed my life to Christ. He's calling you, repent. Come to me, confessing with your mouth and truly believing in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins in place of the wrath that you deserve to take on. By that repentance and turning to him, he gives you the free gift of grace and turns your tragedy into a fairy tale. He wants that for you. He wants that for you. If you're here and you want to make that profession, you know, please come talk to me. Come talk to my father who did announcements. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to get you involved in community so you can begin that sanctification and discipleship journey. We want to help you have that abundant life that he promises you. We don't want you to continue to live out that tragedy like Saul did. So with that, let's pray.